You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, church. And uh, for being hit by a semi-truck, Sean looks wonderful today. Um, so it's been a while since I've been able to see you all. Um, Kennedy and I went up north for Christmas, uh, just visiting the family. So it's been two weeks, and I just got to say it brings me so much joy to be back here with you all, just worshiping the Lord together. So I am I'm really happy uh, to be here. Um, so as Sean said, I'm just stepping in uh, since he got sick. And instead of going through Esther, I wanted to bring us back to the book of Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, maybe next to Romans. And that's only because I feel like Ephesians is just a smaller version of Romans. Um, so this sermon that we'll be going through is, some that, uh, is one that you may recognize if you were here about eight months ago. Um, however, I wanted to still do this sermon again uh, for two main reasons. One, we have a lot of new faces in our church, which I'm extremely grateful for. And then along with that, if you're like me, I am very forgetful, and we need reminders of God's truths. Um, and so that is why we are going back to a, one of my favorite verses uh, in Ephesians. Uh, with that said, just bow your heads with me one more time uh, in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I can come and gather with this church to worship you. I pray that your spirit will be with me as I preach um, and that your word would help mold our hearts into the image of your son. Um, I pray that if there's anything I say in error, that that just falls away and that your truth stands firm. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, so before we really just jump into verses 13 and 14, I wanted to take a step back and look at some of the verses prior. And the reason for this is that, as always, context is king. What, we, what comes before our text can help us understand what we are currently looking at. So Ephesians 1, we can see different roles that the three persons of the Trinity take in what I'm going to call as the covenant of redemption. It's a term that Sean has used before, and just as a reminder, what that is, is that is the covenant that God made with himself in eternity past before a creation to redeem a particular people to himself. So I just wanted to do a quick survey of the preceding verses so that we can identify what the God the Father and God the Son have done in this plan of redemption. So first, we will see the role of God the Father in verse 4 and 5. If you turn there, we will read, Even as he, speaking of, of the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I only am going to talk about this briefly because, honestly, another sermon could be preached just on that verse alone because there's so much to unpack. But what I want to focus on when it comes to the Father's rule is him choosing us and predestining us. What does this mean? It means that God 
before Genesis 1-1, before speaking into existence all of creation, God chose you, Christian, and he chose me to be his sons, to be his daughters, to be his children. Before we could do anything right to earn his love, in love he decreed that we will be his. This is one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture because it really relieves us of the burden of perfectionism from, from our shoulders. It relieves that from our shoulders. And it shows the great love that God has for us. This is truly and fully unconditional love. This was his role in redemption because he is the one who has decreed the end from the beginning. And as you move to Ephesians 1, we can come to verse 7, and it speaks of God the Son's role in redemption. We read, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So before, in verse 4 and 5, God decrees the plan of redemption. He chooses the people. He predestines them for salvation. In this verse, we see that redemption accomplished. It is by the blood of Jesus. It is by his cross. Forgiveness came through his sacrifice. Forgiveness from what? Sin. Sin, which is rebellion against God, deserves God's wrath and punishment. It is a trespass against him. But Christ on the cross is the one that bore that punishment on our behalf. He took God's wrath in our place. Specifically, he did this for those who were chosen in verse 4 and 5. And all of this is done in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So then those are the two roles so far in the Trinity, the Father and the Son. But this morning, I want to focus on the work and role of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And I want to focus on his role specifically in the covenant of redemption. And honestly, I am, I'm excited to do it. Even if this is the second time I focused on this text, my excitement has not ceased. And the reason for this is, again, I need these reminders. I love this text. I'm a forgetful person, and I want to go back here. There's, of course, other reasons that I'm excited for this text. Uh, one of the reasons I'm excited is that when it comes to the persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is talked about the least. Um, the Old and New Testament, God is spoken about in an immense measure. And we have the Gospels that speak about Jesus, and we have Revelation that talks about Jesus' return. But there isn't a book that is written specifically about the Holy Spirit. The closest thing that we get is perhaps the, the book of Acts, as throughout we see that saints are filled or full with the Spirit. However, Acts is a narrative book. It's describing a story. It's not necessarily a direct teaching on the Spirit. This text is one of the few that directly speaks about the Spirit's work in our lives. So to me, just to gain an insight into his work is, is reason enough to be excited. But there's more. The other reason that I'm excited is that this text is one of the greatest texts that I go to 
when I'm in doubt of my salvation or I'm struggling with my faith. When I think to myself, how could, how could I do that? How can I still be struggling with this sin? Am I really a Christian if I just keep on having to battle? I come running to this text. This text fills me with hope. And as we move through it and we contemplate it, I pray that this hope will be made clear today for you all. And if you are a note taker, I will let you know that there are going to be three things that we're going to go over when covering the Spirit's role in redemption. Specifically, his role is applying that redemption. But the three aspects I want to focus on in that application is one, when is redemption applied? Two, how is it applied? And then lastly, and most importantly, why it is applied? So first and foremost, we have to answer the question, when is redemption applied? We read in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 13 seems very clear and dry when it comes to our redemption and how it is applied, to, or when it is applied to us. It is applied when we hear and believe the gospel. There are, how, there are however, a few implications, and it's going to be a little bit of a, a trail, so stick with me, that I want to draw out here. Uh, so there is a particular theological position called hyper-Calvinism uh, that I think that this text specifically cuts against. And hyper-Calvinism is related to the theological position called Calvinism. And to help just define terms and to be transparent, if you did not know, we are a Calvinistic church. So what, what does that mean, though? Well, there are a few core, core doctrines that we hold to that are called the doctrines of grace, and there are five in total. I'm just going to break them down real quick. So first, we believe in what is called total depravity. What that means is that we believe each person born into this world is from the onset, from the beginning, totally depraved. This does not mean that the person is as sinful as they could be, but it does mean that each person is fully and completely affected by sin. Each good deed that a person does is going to be colored and marred by sin, which is why the prophet Isaiah could say that our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. The second doctrine is the doctrine of unconditional election. This is tied to what we've actually already seen in Ephesians 1. It means that God has chosen his people. He has chosen you and me in accordance to his own will, not by anything that we have done. We were not chosen because we were good enough. We were not chosen because we were smart enough, kind enough, or handsome enough. God in love chose us unconditionally. The third doctrine is limited atonement. It also goes by perhaps a more accurate name, in my opinion, particular atonement. This is also seen in Ephesians 1 as it simply means that Christ died to save God's chosen people. God elects a particular people. Christ dies for those particular people. The fourth doctrine is irresistible grace, which means that the Spirit calls irresistibly those who were chosen and those who Christ died. So you see that continuity between the three persons. And then the final doctrine is the doctrine of preservation of the saints. God's people will not be lost. They will become saved and they will stay saved 
And you might see a glimpse of that already in the text at hand. And all this is just to give you background information on hyper-Calvinism, which takes these doctrines and twists them and conclude that since God does all of this, there is no reason to evangelize. There is no reason for us to go out and share our faith or defend our faith, because God can do it all. God will save whom he wills, regardless of if we put any effort into it. And this may be a thought that you have had. This is a thought I've had, because honestly, trying to share our faith or defend our faith to evangelize is intimidating. It can be scary. It can be uncomfortable. And it's far easier just to put our hands up, just back away, and just be like, I'll let God handle it. But it is through us that God redeems his flock that are not in the fold yet. We are his means to that end. All right, this, this is all well and good, and you might thank me for the quick theology lesson, but how is that actually relevant to our text? Well, let's look back at it. Let's look back at our text again and focus. We read again, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It is clear that we are not supposed to be passive, like a hyper-Calvinist argues. The gospel is good news, and it is meant to be told. How can someone hear the gospel if it is not told? This implies that God's people, you, Christian, me, we are not passive in God's plan of redemption. Some of you may think that that's not necessary. That's, he can choose to save anyone any, any way he sees fit. He could perhaps use a vision uh, or a miracle to save someone on the spot without our involvement. But I would argue that this isn't going to be the primary means that he does it. I will concede that he could, but it's not the way he has chosen for the gospel to go out. If you wish, um, please turn with me to Romans 10, uh, 13 through 15, where the apostle Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I do not think it can be really made any clearer than that. It is through us, the people of God, that God chooses to save. And we should rejoice, rejoice in that. God will actually use us in his plan of redemption. So that is one aspect of when redemption is applied, but it's not just hearing the gospel. We can't just hear the gospel and be saved. We also have to believe the gospel. If we could just hear the gospel and be saved, every one of us needs to grab a megaphone, go to Jordan Creek Mall, and just shout in people's ears. But you have to believe. It must be believed that we are sinful creatures, that we are in need of saving. We must believe that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came and died for our sins, and that we have redemption through his blood. Only then, when the gospel is heard and believed, is redemption applied. So when it is applied, that then brings up the natural question of how exactly is it? What's the details of how it is applied? What happens after we believe? Our text today goes on, and we read at the end of verse 13 into verse 14 that we 
We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This is how our redemption is applied. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Being sealed can mean many different things. Uh, it could mean to like seal up, like you might seal up a jar by twisting it, preventing something from leaving the container. Or it's like how Jesus was sealed in the tomb. If we take seal in this sense, perhaps the Holy Spirit is basically the seal that keeps the truth of the gospel in our hearts. And this could be a sense of the word in this case. However, some commentators, and I agree with them, I think they find it more accurate to say that the use of the term seal is more like a mark or an official seal placed on an object for authentication. For example, a king would oftentimes place a seal on an official document authenticating the authority of the document, saying that it is from him and it is binding upon his people. Merchants would also place seal, seals on their cargo, showing ownership of their goods. In these cases, the seal represents authenticity, ownership, authority over that which is sealed. The spirit, then, is the seal that is given to authenticate our redemption in identifying us as God's people. In a sense, it makes our redemption official. This is how the redemption that was decided before the foundations of the world, that Christ accomplished at the cross, at Calvary, is applied. Why, though, is that important? It is important because it is the proof that we are no longer who we once were. It is proof that our ownership of our hearts has been transferred to God. If you read on in Ephesians, and I really hope you do, in Ephesians 2, we see that we were once children of wrath under the prince of the power of the air, who I take to be Satan. We were once the sons and daughters of disobedience. That's our past. That's who we once were. But the seal of the Spirit means we are now sons and daughters of God. It is another sign of our adoption into God's family. God looked at you from eternity past, knowing your rebellion, knowing your sin, and said, no, this one, they'll be mine. I'll put them in my family. You were then sealed when you had faith with the Spirit as undeniable proof that God is your Father and that the Son has accomplished your redemption. But the Spirit does more than simply apply redemption. He guarantees it. If you would read the first portion of verse 14 again with me, speaking of the Spirit, we read that who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? And this gets into the final question of, of why he applies redemption. We read that he's the guarantee of inheritance. Now, inheritance here is a little bit different than inheritance in verse 11 prior uh, to this text. Many different commentators argue that inheritance in verse 11 is speaking of us being more of God's inheritance or his heritage. We are a people becoming something that he obtains. Here, the inheritance is, is slightly different. 
Instead, something, it's not something that God will gain, but it's something that we gain and is guaranteed. And I'll take some time later on that particular word guaranteed, but I want to focus on inheritance because if the Holy Spirit is the seal for that inheritance, it is extremely important to understand what that inheritance is. Uh, some commentaries would state that it's going to be eternal life in heaven. And this is certainly a portion of it, because eternal life in heaven are two of the greatest hopes that we have as Christians. When we die physically, the story is not over. We will go to be with God but I think there's, there's even more. Because John Calvin rightly points out in his commentary that this world is, is full of corruption ever since the fall in Genesis 3. And from this, we should remember that our ultimate end is not to depart from this world forever. The ultimate end is that Christ will come back and he will restore creation to perfection. The corruption will be cleansed and we will not forever live as spirits, but we will be given new, physical, resurrected, perfect, and glorified bodies to live on the new heavens and new earth. All of this is our inheritance. This is what the Spirit is guaranteeing, because we are heirs with Christ. You can see Romans 8. And to me, this is the fullness of our salvation or the consequences of it. That's what we have to look forward to. And I pray that it strikes you with awe and brings your heart to a place of worship. What is amazing is God does not stop here. It, it wasn't enough that God gives us this glorious end. But I've mentioned before, he guarantees it. The Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee. So this word, guarantee, this, this one little word is, is what gives me so much hope and confidence in my salvation. Some translations translate the word as, as down payment. The Spirit is the down payment for our inheritance. He's the portion of our full inheritance that we will receive at a later date. And this, I think, is a good translation. Um, but I am actually partial to a slightly different translation. Of the word, and I think it really captures uh, the spirits of what is being said. No pun intended. It's a little bit old school, but I actually really like the King James Version's translation of this word. They translate the word as an earnest payment. Well, what what does it mean? What does that mean? Well, let me paint you just a quick little picture. So in 2021, my wife and I had been contemplating if we were at the point in our lives where we could buy a house. Um, part of this was that my brother was encouraging us uh, just to look into it because he recently got a house. It was at a good price, less than his rent. So I was intrigued. So I talked to a real estate agent who pointed me to a loan officer. And it's through the loan officer that I found out that there was a lot that goes into purchasing a house besides just getting a loan. Excuse my ignorance, but I have lived in apartments, so I had no idea. Uh, I knew that there would be a down payment for the house, but I also learned that there was things, uh, other things that I'd have to pay for. I'd have to uh, pay the closing costs. And he also told me that I'd have to use earnest money in the purchase. 
and the earnest money would show that I was serious about closing. And if I did not show up at the close and make the deal and because I got cold feet and just wanted to back out, I would lose my earnest money. It's the sellers to keep forever. And you may be familiar uh, with this context, but I want us to pause and think about what the implications then for our text is. The Holy Spirit is the earnest payments for our redemption. God has said that he would redeem you at the close, and at the close of sale, you will receive your inheritance. At the close, we have eternal life. We have heaven, restoration, resurrection, and eternity with God. If that close does not happen, if we do not receive the inheritance, if God fails to bring us to that end, and we fall away from the faith, we would keep the earnest payment. We would keep the Holy Spirit. God would lose the third person of the Trinity. And if that sounds ridiculous to you, it should be. Church, for God to lose a person of the tr Trinity is an impossibility. It cannot happen. This, the implications of this is that your salvation then is secure. You cannot become unsaved. God, the Holy Spirit himself, guarantees it. And I think the great pastor and theologian, uh, Vodi Bauckham, I think summed it up best. For you to lose your salvation, God has to stop being God. This truth is so beautiful to me. See, sometimes, again, I struggle with doubts. I can doubt God. I can doubt his word. I can doubt my salvation. I struggle with sin, and it doesn't seem to go away. And I can look at myself in the mirror sometimes and be like, are you really a Christian? Perhaps you struggle with your faith. Perhaps you've had doubts. But you can come to this text and look and see how God has marked you as his own. He's put a seal on you. He has made the earnest payment of your salvation, which he cannot lose. Of all the constants in the universe that we rely on, there is none greater that, than that God will never stop being God. Your salvation, Christian, is secured by the Holy Spirit. And before we move on to what I think is the final reason why the Holy Spirit has applied our redemption, there is one thing that I want to mention. Just as hyper-Calvinism takes the roles of the Father and the Son too far, there's a group that I think takes this role of the Spirit a little bit too far. There's a belief called antinomianism. And what that means is basically they say that since our salvation is secure and we can never lose it, we can live our lives any way we please. We can go on sinning. There's no point to trying to live a holy life. This belief is far from the truth. You can just turn with me to Romans 6. Paul wrestles with this exact same question in the first four verses of Romans 6. Prior to these verses, he was arguing that with the law came an increase of sin. But with the increase of sin, God got to show his grace all the more. 
and he anticipated this objection made by the antinomianism that we can just sin. And he says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul makes it clear for us. Christian, you are saved. You cannot lose your salvation, but you are not free to live your life as you please. Your old self was in bondage to sin and had no other option until it was freed. But now you are called by the Spirit to become more and more like Christ. The seal of the Spirit is not a license to live a life of sin, but it is instead our helper to live a holy life. That brings me then to the final reason that the Holy Spirit has applied our redemption. He certainly gives us security, and we will receive our inheritance, and we will be with God. But ultimately, these things serve a purpose as well. In the final portion of our text, we read, to the praise of his glory. This is the ultimate reason for the Spirit's role. The praise of God's glory. And as I was writing this, I was debating whether or not to focus on that. Because if you spend any time with Redemption Hill, we love to glorify God. And I was worried that I would essentially just keep hammering on the same nail, that I'd be repeating myself too much. But repetition is a good thing because it helps us focus on what is important. Because if we look at Ephesians 1, Paul repeats himself over and over when it comes to glory. And he's not doing this for an arbitrary word count. He's wanting to underline and highlight and bold the importance of the glory of God. If you would, just skim through Ephesians 1 with me, and we will see it overflowing with glory. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or in verse 12 we read, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In our passage, we see the phrase again, to the praise of his glory. In verse 17, it says, the father of glory. Lastly, verse 20, to the riches of his glorious inheritance. We read glory after glory after glory, just in Ephesians 1. If glory is so important to Paul to mention it five times in the first chapter, it must be important to us. Our redemption is to the praise of God's glory. So as you leave here today, do not forget all that God has accomplished. Meditate on the Holy Spirit 
and how he has applied redemption to you, guaranteeing your salvation. And let that bring you to a place where the praise of God and his glory be on your lips from Sunday to Sunday. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.